Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just so you know, Claudio Ranieri has been sacked. What? <laughs> It is Thursday, which means it's time for the front three Q&A. We meet at a bowl with the one and only Chris Hennage. Good evening. And the man who's quickly becoming the front three super sub, Nick Morales. Nick, welcome back. Hello. How are you doing? Doing very well. Pleasure to have you on the show once again, uh, stepping in for both Lawrence and Dave. Two pairs of shoes to fill. So uh, I'm like Angola Conte. I do the I do the work too. Yes, I like it. I like it. Um, guys, we are going to talk all the Champions League action, of course. Very eventful week in the Champions League. Four games, 19 goals in those first legs. We're also going to be answering your questions, as always, on a Thursday. But first, uh, there's the small news. It's Dilly Ding Dilly Done for Claudio Ranieri, Chris. Sacked sensationally by Leicester uh, just as we're recording the podcast. I mean, what do you make of this? I mean, initial reactions for me is that it seems like the wrong time to, to, to make this move. You'd thinking surely they have someone lined up to come in, but why now? Why not before? The, the talk is it was confirmed to him when they landed in England. So you have to think maybe the severe result influences things slightly that was a good result a 2-1 away from home to a very good severe team getting that away goal the second half performance encouraging in so many ways uh, just feels Mm. like such a bizarre reaction to what was a good result when we've had so many dreadful results in previous weeks I I, I do wonder if they've been slightly influenced by the fact that there are a lot of numbers that come out when um, we hit like the last 10 games of the season. And if you look at coaches that are installed with 10 games to go, the record of survival is pretty terrible. Um, I'm guessing here from a start, I remember hearing a few years ago, I think there was only one coach that had ever done it where it came in with 10 games to go and then stayed up. Um, so maybe they've looked at that. I mean, it's you know, 25 games down in the Premier League at the minute. I don't think the Champions League is a massive concern to them realistically they care more about staying in the Premier League for obvious financial reasons so perhaps that game against Sevilla was very, very much the litmus test to okay you know how how were this and then let's be honest we'll, we'll come on and talk about that game the first 45 minutes they were battered and there is no other way to spin that Kasprich Michael kept them in the game Dave did a really good stat for us that I think he made four saves in the first half, which is more than any other goalkeeper in the last 16. And you just looked at the defenders. They were terrible. Um, I think we put another star as well after the game. Only Danny Simpson won a tackle in that back four last night. Um, two of them didn't even produce a tackle or didn't even attempt one. So, again, they might seem like very mundane statistics but I think when you look at what they're tasked with doing that doesn't make for good reading and and I think it, again it's far too superficial to simply say well you know if N'Golo Kante was there this would all be different it's really not there's a massive drop off and I've said consistently from the minute they won the title Claudio Ranieri's second season is massively a sophomore slump it's when he struggles it's when things drop off but I I will be very honest and say now, even I didn't think it would be this much of a slump. Like I thought they might drop to maybe 6th, 8th, 10th 
at worst case 12th. I didn't think they'd be fighting to stay in the league come you know the the end of February. The thing is, Nick, <laughs> this comes 16 days after Ranieri got the dreaded voter support uh, from the board. Yeah. Um, maybe more significantly, it comes 298 days after you won them the Premier League. Now, uh, it, objectively, it's it, it's clear to understand what Chris is saying there that the, the league form has been incredibly disappointing this season. It's something that the the board have pointed to in their announcement of the news that you know it's a difficult decision for them but they need to put the 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 club's long-term interests above all that but do you not feel like he deserved more of a chance deserved a little bit longer he's earned that with such an incredible uh, achievement last season to try and lift Leicester out of this situation or do you think it's the right decision to make such a drastic and controversial move at this time uh, with the stakes so high yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting that you phrase it in that way that, that we talk about, you know, does does Ranieri deserve to stay with Leicester after all he's done for them? And and we look at, you know, football is a really unprofessional business because, like you said, you know, one or two weeks ago that he received the dreaded vote of confidence, which is like if any other corporation and any other medium decided to back their back a certain employee and say, you know, we have full confidence that he'll be able to do a job. And then two weeks later, they fire him. You know, you'd be looking at them. Like they were from another planet, but it seems to be a common thing in football. But I think from the perspective that, you know, does he need to go and is this needed? I think certainly so. And and the, the result against Sevilla actually points that out quite clearly to me because it's not really in, in many cases, at least from their star players and Jamie Vardy and, and Riyad Mahrez and, and other players like that. It's not really them dropping off massively in terms of performance in my opinion i think it's a tactical thing i think if you look at the way that they play as a whole their 442 is all out of shape the spacing between the two blocks of four is completely different than when it was last year it's so non-compact there's nobody occupying the the space in between and blocking passing lanes they're pressing which is probably their most their their biggest difference between this year and last i was looking at some some interception charts and ball recovery charts earlier today because i was going to write something on lester um was you know where they're where they're intercepting and where they're recovering the ball this year as opposed to last year and their press is so disorganized that it leaves them so open in central midfield that i think that's that's why so many so many teams are able to enjoy you know the best game of their season against them because it's really ridiculously easy to play against them so from a tactical perspective I think Claudio Ranieri's got it all wrong there's a major difference between this season and last and he's obviously not able to change it up or or do anything different from from what he did last season so I definitely think it's the right decision Ranieri does have to take uh, some of the blame of course Chris as Nick points to their um, tactical errors on his part what about the players though it's hard to escape the feeling that they've let him down as well they have. I think this is the thing. It's it's not everyone that takes the blame because if you were to sack everyone, that would cost you a mountain, whereas you can get rid of the coach and, and really not suffer a huge financial loss. That is part of the, you could say, the territory of being a coach is that, unfortunately, the book often stops with you, even if it's not your fault. So I would say, actually, the recruitment staff have to take a really serious look at themselves because they signed Mendy. They signed um, Kramerick before that. They've picked up a lot of the players that haven't worked out for Leicester. If you look at the stars of, of last season, Vardy and Mares were already there. Kasper Schmeichel's already there. Wes Morgan's already there. Yes, Huth was picked up. You can say Kante again. But they, from what I can understand, Walsh had left <clears throat> for, I think it was Everton by that point. So whoever has come in has clearly not been able to have um, the correct dialogue with the coach to either say, look, we can't find another candidate, so you're going to have to develop something different or been able to actually sign that player. Now, indeed, he looks a good replacement, but again, he doesn't look like the kind of midfielder that's going to get through as much work as someone like Kante. Um, I, th- I think, yeah, the players certainly deserve it. I think Mares has looked very meek at times this season. There's been a few instances where I've watched him and he loses the ball and he just does nothing to try and get it back. And Things like that, that can be influenced by the coach. I think it's very easy for us to sit in these sort of ivory towers and say, oh, well, why don't they run harder? Why don't they try harder? I, I do also think, and I know me and Dave have talked about this on the pod before, they really should have taken the money in the summer with Mars and Vardy and just decided to build something totally brand new. 
I think trying to keep that lightning in a bottle forever was always going to spell disaster because there was too many moving parts that made it that perfect storm like Kante, like the fact that Morgan and Huth were able to sit frighteningly deep and defend in their penalty area. You look at last night, we put a, stat, we put a, a tweet out that looked at the heat maps for the back four last season when they beat Everton, I think, to clinch the title, and then last night. And they're taking their touches about 10 yards further up the field than they were last time. Now, that space might sound inconsequential, but actually it opens them up a lot more as a defence. And it means that Puth, Morgan, Fuchs, Simpson, they have to be very different in the way that they play. Now, Fuchs is a decent technician. Danny Simpson is definitely not. I had the pleasure of watching Danny for a few years. And not only is he not the greatest on the ball, he also had a really bad habit for backing off wingers that run at him. And the same, I would argue, applies to Morgan and Hooth. And equally, when there's more space around you, it's harder to stay compact, it's harder to stay organised. So they're just some of the things. Before you even look at the fact that Vardy doesn't get the space he did last year, teams are not looking to give him that little channel down on the side or in behind. And it means he's had to become quite clever. I remember, and it sounds really ominous now, or slightly prophetic even, speaking to the chairman at Stocksbridge Park Steels, the, the non-league club he was at. And they said, his game really hasn't changed since he was with us. And and they were like, I know that sounds bizarre, but honestly, he was very much on the shoulder, in behind, that was his game. And you would argue that it's taken a season, but essentially teams have figured that out and now don't afford him the same space in the way that they, they did with Mara's as well. just feels cold. Football's a cruel, cruel game. Um, it's all set up for uh, Nigel Pearson's triumphant return, though, is it not? <laughs> to guide them to safety, to win the Champions League. I can see that for <laughs> now. I mean, where do they go from here, do you think, Nick? Because uh, what also, for me, makes it a slightly puzzling decision, we're yet to see who the next man to come in is, but there's a real dearth of options there. I mean, you're looking at the usual suspects, Alan Pardew, uh, Roy Hodgson, maybe, uh, Tactics Tim, of course. To be perfectly honest with you, in terms of candidates going forward, I, I have absolutely no idea. I don't know of anyone that can really uh, come in and make them as defensively solid as they were last year. But in terms of moving forward, I think as much as teams have adjusted to how Leicester have played and how Leicester played last season, they're doing they're not doing near as as well as they did last year because they're not doing the things that they did last year near as well. And I think Chris talks about how, you know, the the defense steps up an extra ten yards and there's a certain there's there's a truth to that. But if you look at sort of the the best parts of the four four two formation, it's sort of ensuring that every every attack that the opposition tries to come at you with it goes down the flanks and eventually ends up in a cross, which Wes Morgan and Robert Huth are very good at dealing with. They're not really doing that last year. They're getting centrally penetrated left, right, and center, and and they're they're simply not doing those things. So it's about getting a manager that can come in and ensure that a similar style of play can be implemented as the, as they were last year, because that's certainly not the case this year. I mean, Chris, give it Giggsy to the end of the season. He was complaining yesterday about uh, how British managers have a lack of opportunities. <laughs> Is that the potential uh, savior of Leicester City at this point? Oh, I'd love to see him and Mercer do it. Some kind of double act, um, like Julian Evans all those years ago, co-managing. Um, yeah, just, it's it's difficult, isn't it? Because there's no... I mean, you you talked about um, Pardew and things like that, but even that, they kind of feel like... They don't, they don't feel like sort of a wealth of great candidates. I mean, to be fair, this is where a club really does earn its... Well, interestingly, the bookmaker's favourite now is Roberto Mancini, a former Fox himself, Premier League title-winning Italian manager, Nick. He's much more of an attacking-minded coach, and I think for a number of years now he's worked with higher-fidelity players. I don't think he would take the job in the first place, but in terms of you, you have to look at what you know most relegation guys come in and do. What, what does Big Sam come in and do? Make sure that the team aren't conceding goals. You have to find a manager like that. I, I, I just don't. You have to imagine that they have a plan in sacking Ranieri, but at the same time, I don't know of my available knowledge who, who could come in and, and do a good enough job to keep them in the league. Well, if it is Mancini, the club will be looking to bring him in as soon as possible. I just, it just feels like such a brutal decision um, to sack someone who has, has given the club their, their finest hour, potentially what will be the finest hour in their entire history. Um, I mean... 
is sacking Ranieri and bringing in Mancini, is that really the solution here? It depends how much resentment was held to Ranieri. That, that's what you've got to look at. Was, was the complacency amongst the players down to him? If so, then it will. Now, we talk about this a lot in football, the idea of you know a change being as good as a rest, that a new manager revitalising players and things like that. I always say that in instances like that where your players just down tools, I think long term it points to the fact that you've got to get rid of a lot of them because their characters are just they're bad eggs. Um, do you, can I ask you something, Chris? Though. Yeah, sure. But do you? I mean, in my in my in my opinion, when I when I I haven't watched Leicester that much this season to 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 be fair. But at the same time, in watching them against Sevilla yesterday, I think. It's not for me. It's not really about the complacency, and maybe this is the way I lean towards most topics. But I just think if you, if you ask anyone out there who who looks at you know tactical analysis and stuff like that, mm-hmm. if you're disorganized in your press and you have that slow of a back line, I don't think it's necessarily the attitude of the players. It's more just you're leaving that much open central space in, in midfield to be exposed, and yeah. against that back line, I just don't. I'm not sure if I 100% buy into the the idea that it's the player's attitude. I mean, I understand there are comments from Peter Schme- or not Peter Schmeichel, Casper Schmeichel, um, about you know the, the the climate in the dressing room and and stuff like that. But I'm I'm just not sure if it's 100%. You know, attitude. so I think I think firstly that's a fantastic point, and I think that's where Ranieri has to take responsibility because essentially a lot of people predicted this shift into the second season that they were going to have to move up the field. The teams weren't going to throw themselves onto Leicester in the way that they did last season. And that's where he has to look at his team and his squad and say, okay, well, we're going to have to play different ways. And I think you saw maybe just subtle attempts at that when he signed people like Ahmed Moussa. He wanted speed. So again, they could try and get him behind things like that. The problem with guys like Moussa is, and and I know CSKA fans will talk with greater depth about this than I can, He's not the greatest technical player in the world, so you're going to be looking to try and play balls in behind the fullback for him. But again, teams aren't going to come out. If anything, they're going to sit off and treat Leicester the way that Leicester would treat last season. So that's definitely where he deserves a little bit of um, blame, if you will, if, if that's what we're looking to, to define it as. I think also saying that... Games like Sevilla, the players don't seem to have much of an issue getting up for. I think it was just a, a general lethargy that seemed to impact them in the first half. It's the, the matches like Swansea and things like that where, again, they need to raise the level. And for all the, the great things that Paul Clemens done, for all the organisation and structure he's given Swansea, they also just seemed really up for the game against Leicester. I know we always want to quantify things in tactics, and, and I totally agree that's a very valid point of the discussion. There are also these intangibles like effort how how hard is the team working how hard are they running are they trying to to really win their tackles or are they maybe shirking some like Riyad Mahrez would do from time to time mm. those are the instances where I think again it talks to the fact that the group's not the, the greatest I think realistically guys like Mahrez were probably very tempted by the likes of Barcelona in the summer and when they stayed and things didn't start to go right that's when you start to question well you know did I make the right decision in the case of Jamie Vardy not going to Arsenal and it's it's one of those things. Um, I, th- I want to say soconomics, where Jean-Michel Olas, the the Lyon owner, uh, yeah. outlines his kind of transfer rules. And one of them is to sell a player when you get a bid that exceeds their value. For Leicester, what they did instead was give him a brand new contract. And again, so much of this is steeped in hindsight. And and as as someone that's slowly moving into the the technical side of the game. I have a lot of sympathy for the people involved because, again, we're talking months down the line knowing what we know. They made those decisions in the moment and I imagine with a lot of facts in front of them. So it's very difficult. But as I say, I still think, and I I may have said it at the time, I can't remember to be honest, that they should have wiped clean. They should have sought to get new players. I don't think getting Mendy, who again, to me at least, maybe the... The numbers and the analytics were saying different. Wasn't lighting up League One last season. Guys like Musa, who looked very patchy, looked like a real sort of Champions League striker, a bit like Joe was many years ago, would could do it in Champions League in that contained environment, but 
probably wasn't going to be able to transition well to, to different leagues and different setups. A lot of mistakes made then um, from that total winning season. Very sad to see Claudio Ranieri go either way. Um, led Leicester to the greatest story in Premier League history. Uh, still an incredible achievement, an incredible season. Ah, need to get Andrea Bocelli back. Get him singing on the pitch. Time to say goodbye. You know, get some tears flowing. Let the fans say their goodbye. Um, interestingly, Henry Winter uh, of the Times is reporting that some of the Leicester players want Nigel Pearson back because, of course, they do. Um, so maybe it will actually happen. Maybe he's going to, another fairy tale. Uh, he's going to lead them to Champions League glory. Uh, remains to be seen. Um, let's move on, though. We've got to talk about Manchester City. Monaco, a 5-3 thriller at the Etihad Stadium, one of the best Champions League games of all time, Nick. Yeah, it was it was a really excellent game for the neutral, obviously, but um, you know, a horrifying game for me. I was screaming, I was yelling, I was jumping up and down. But you know, it, from a tactical perspective, I think. It, Looking at this game from afar previously, we we had to sort of expect this, right? Because Manchester City going forward have been piecing the 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 parts together little, you know, every now and again, and then eventually getting that front five, uh, front six almost of of Kevin De Bruyne, David Silva, Sergio Aguero, Raheem Sterling, and Leroy Sané all together, and really overloading that penalty box and creating high fidelity chances. And then you have Monaco with their excellence on the counterattack. I mean, some of the chances that they created just, and it's not long ball football. I think that's something that we have to, to pinpoint. It's, it's, it's long pass football. And it was really some, one of the best Champions League games that I've ever, that I've ever had the, the pleasure to watch. It was a pleasure to watch going forward. At the back, however, another story. I mean, that performance defensively has got to worry you ahead of that second leg, Nick. Yeah, um, it, it's an interesting one. It doesn't worry as worry me as much as as I think people are making it out to be such a defensive crisis. I think we have to look at sort of the two uh, tactical implementations that Guardiola likes to to put into his team. That really, um, it's not traditional defending, is it? It's more of just counter pressing, which eliminates the threat of a long ball coming over the top in the first place. Because when you have so many players farther forward, we're talking about at, at times eight players far forward and two central defenders at the back. So you have the counter press eliminating the, the possibility of a counterattack right at the root. And then you also have something that wasn't, hasn't been up to, to scratch and was certainly wasn't in this game is the high line. And it's something that Nicholas Otamendi was terrible at uh, throughout this whole game. And it was that John Stones was brought into the game for two reasons. Um, his passing decisions in the game, which to be honest, weren't great, uh, and also his ability to hold the high line, and he was trying to, but at, at certain times, killing Mbappe, and credit to him, he he was able to to fool Nicolas Otamendi into into playing him on sides, and it was a really poor performance from him off the ball, but, you know, defensively, he had some great interceptions, but I think it's, the specifically speaking about the, the Falcao versus John Stones one-on-one, I mean, how many times in world football do we see a, a central defender put one-on-one with a striker and come out you know the the better in those situations. I think it's a difficult one. Manchester City are conceding these high fidelity chances because of the lack of efficacy of their other defensive options. And I think going forward, you know, perfecting those those strategies as well as you know getting possibly in uh, a few different persons uh, forward to to better implement those ideas is uh, is essential. Chris, did you feel Manchester City was somewhat? fortunate to get back into this game i know a lot of people talk about the the heart and the character they showed but you know Subasic essentially gave them a goal from that aguero shot two set pieces poor defending from monaco uh, did you feel there was a, a little bit of luck involved i, I i'm i'm allowed to say look but i i do view that penalty with falcao with a lot more importance than maybe some do because i think in that moment if if the penalty goes in i think it changes the potential dynamic of the game significantly because it, it once again puts things on Monaco, gives them the impetus, if you will. And for, I think in general, what, what surprised me more about the game was, was Monaco's sort of inability to, to show a little bit of maturity. I mean, I know we talk about the fact this is a young team. There's, you know, you've got Fabinho's like 23, Bakayoko, Lamar, etc., etc., but there was just this element to the whole side, even Glick, who is, is uh, older Subasic guys like that, who just didn't seem to know. And you could even uh, put this on Jardim himself, 
they didn't know when to stop. They just kept running and running. It was very much like watching a boxer just throw punch after punch after punch. And every now and again, a couple landed. You look at the Mbappe goal, etc., etc. But it, it meant that they were so susceptible to conceding themselves. And look, I, I think the, the Subasic error is a big one. I, th- I think it's a bit harsh to, to say it's luck on, on Man City side because I think it did take some effort and some some quality as well. I just think that overall the game was set up that neither team looked that comfortable defending, but for very different reasons. I don't think City defend the transition very well. And I also think that, that Monaco just seemed a little bit too energized by the occasion. To some extent, I agree with it. I think they didn't uh, defend in, in certain situations as well as they could. And, and there's a point where they could have closed off the game, specifically the penalty. Uh, but, you know, as the game grew on, you know, you're talking about Manchester City creating chances against. It's not as if the chances that they created were on the counterattack as Monaco's were. If you look at the three goals that Monaco scored, really only one of them was with them holding a bit of possession and then creating a chance through that. If you look at the the Falcao header, which there was some poor marking from both John Stones and Bakary Sanya. But I think looking at the five goals that Manchester City scored, it was against a, a 4-4-2 with some brilliant offensive play and some brilliant brilliant link-up play. And, and that's something that we associate uh, and and has become synom- synonymous with, with Guardiola over the years is his ability to create uh, goals no matter no matter the situation. So I think there, there's a credit to City... Uh, there, in a sense, but I, at the same time, I can I can see what you're saying in terms of uh, Monaco's inability to to shut up shop, in a sense. Chris, uh, who's your money on going into the second leg? Because it feels delicately poised. Obviously, Man City have the advantage, being five three up, but you know Monaco are going to score at home. Surely, Guardiola said as much. Man City need to get an away goal themselves. Who are you backing going into that second leg? My gut says City um, because I think while you you completely right in saying that Monaco possess the ability to score goals. I do think City do as well. And what's interesting to me watching that first leg back is how Aguero seems to be slowly transitioning to the striker that Guardiola prepares. He's doing a lot more defensive work. He's putting a lot more tackles in. He's trying to win the ball back high up. I think he's trying to be what essentially Gabriel Jesus is already. Um, And I think that could be an important shift for them moving into that that sort of next stage is presuming they go through. Nico, are you confident of uh, of going through to the next stage based on uh, based on that first leg performance? I'm not supremely confident, but I agree with a, a lot of what Chris is saying. I think Aguero's performance was was pretty good, and and obviously he's changed his style a little bit. And the only thing that I would really criticize him on is his passing. But I think one thing that we really have to look at um, in terms of determining whether Manchester City will go through or not is there's a there's a few fixtures between now and then it's not like they've played this leg and then they have they obviously don't have any games in the Premier League this weekend but you know they have some games in in the cup between now and then so you talk about fixture congestion and something that we'll we'll have to see how Guardiola sort of prioritizes the Champions League which I think he will um, but perhaps deal with the losses or the results in other competitions Um, but yeah I'm not supremely confident but I definitely think it's something that that City will be able to pull off if we get the away goal which I think we will. One team who almost certainly seems to have gone through to the next stage is Atletico Madrid, Chris, uh, beating Bayer Leverkusen 4-2 away from home. Uh, what did you make of this one? Because, I mean, they've completely taken charge of this tie. I wasn't expecting so many goals, um, but it, it was a real goal fest. It was two runaway trains on the same track plough into each other and one survives. Um, I, I think... I think Leverkusen, in, in my eyes, from from what I've seen, which I'll I'll be very honest in saying is not the most detailed evaluation, have been quite patchy in the Bundesliga this season, and I think Atletico stumbled upon what was a bad patch. In in that sense, I, I like Atletico. I just think that this could very much be the last assault for them. Um, they've done tremendous to to get as far as they have in this competition in the previous few years. I have a horrible feeling that this summer is when the band is. Is properly broken up though. Disappointing night uh, for Leverkusen, Nick, and seemingly out of this tie. Yeah, it was a weird 
I think we we've seen Roger Schmidt really change the way that he approaches games in the Champions League over the past year or so with uh, some high scoring games being associated with Bayer Leverkusen as a whole. But in the Bundesliga, you know, they they do employ a, a medium block which really nullifies the space in central midfield and are excellent defensively. So it was really weird to see both teams concede more than what we're used to, but it uh, you know, in terms of the neutral it was a fantastic game, but I, I think it's not necessarily all done here, um, and it'll be an interesting second leg, but it, I'd be surprised if Atletico didn't go through. Juventus, as well, on course to go through. They beat FC Porto 2-0 away from home, uh, punishing the 10-man side, uh, taking charge with two late goals in the late stage of the game, um, one from Piaka, one from Dani Alves, uh, proving potentially, Chris, for you, that they're uh, one of the uh, contenders for this competition. Definitely. I think <clears throat> from a portal perspective, um, Teller's a bit reckless, really. I'd, I'd, he, he's done well to, to displace Miguel Leung, the Mexican uh, left-back, who I think started the season at Watford, memory serves. And the thing is with Leung, though, I think he's a little bit more reliable. Um, I don't know if he makes that same mistake, or the same mistake, excuse me, as, as Teller's, and thus gets sent off and causes the big couple in the first place the the thing I like about Juventus and you you maybe have to look at the whole context of the tournament here and the fact that it looks like Barcelona are going out is that once once a game with them gets to 2-0 just buy just don't even bother trying they, they are the kind of team that seem to decimate opponents 2-0 which sounds oxymoronic because you know, was it 2-0 is the most dangerous scoreline in football? <laughs> but I, I think they have such control over the game. And it was 19, 19 shots uh, for Juventus to free for Porto, uh, zero of which were on target for the home side. So uh, the, yeah, the stats see, do speak to that. It, it was a battering, essentially. But but this is the thing. I've, I've seen them do this in the league as well, where they'll come out of a game 2-0, but... You watch the highlights, and you would think you were watching it on the Juventus channel. The, the, but it's it's not. It's a more than fair reflection of the game. And I know a lot of people raised eyebrows when Higuain was signed and things like this. And, and granted, he didn't score against Porto. I'm aware of that. But it, it's moments like that where you think, okay, this makes a lot more sense now because they just wanted so many different ways to pick the lock. If it's not Dybala, then it's potentially Higuain. If it's not him, it's Piaka. It's there's such a, a strength in depth of that squad. Because when you look at a lot of the teams in the Champions League, there are definite frailties. It might mean you have to pull out a first-team player and put a reserve in, but you will eventually find a frailty with, I would say, almost every team left in the Champions League right now. I find it quite difficult to do that with Juventus. I see a fairly consistent level amongst everyone from starter to finisher. Of course, there are some that have greater potential, but the underlying, on his worst day, this is his level, is fairly constant. And I think that is what could really propel them to the final. And actually, even winning the thing, I would not be surprised if we sit here in a few months and we're toasting Juventus winning Champions League. Great to see Ike Casillas as well and uh, Gianluigi Buffon facing off against other for the 17th time. I'd see them embrace at the end of the match. Uh, two titans of the game, two of the greatest goalkeepers of all time. That is the Champions League wrapped up then. Let's move on to the question. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. First off, Alan Tobin says, 
If you were in Wayne Shaw's position, would you have eaten the pie? Great question. Uh, this is concerning the fallout from Wayne Shaw's uh, pie pie gate. I think is what people are calling it. Um, a lot of people. Well, you think that you know? Yeah. Calling, calling something gate because yeah. the Watergate works, scandal. Right? It, it just wasn't just... a scandal about water. Yeah. It was a scandal about Did you guys see the? Um, they, they, I mean, it was a joke on Twitter, but uh, they called it Eargate Gate, where. Um, where they uh, there was pictures that surfaced that Real Madrid had watered the Napoli offensive side of the pitch more than they had really? the um, the Real Madrid offensive side of the pitch at, at switching halftime, so the ball was a little bit more slippery on the, on the Napoli side, and the pitch was a little oh. bit more slippery on the Napoli side during the uh, Champions League uh, game last week. So many scandals in football these days. Um, I know. I mean, Nick, what did you make of the whole Wayne Shaw situation? A lot of people saying the game's gone mad. You know, you're, you're sacking someone for a bit of fun, eating a pie. At the same time, it's all very dodgy, this whole sum bets uh, collusion, essentially, leading to an investigation by the Gambling Commission. For that reason, I mean, I don't have a great deal of sympathy for him. Yeah, I really don't either. It's consistent with the character of, of not of Wayne Shaw, but of, you know, the organization that is the Sun. Um, but, you know, I, I, I don't think it's, it's wrong for him to step down. I just think it's it's sort of a weird one they've sort of ruined that that occasion for those Sutton players uh, that's a, that's a team right I don't want yeah, to speak. yeah, yeah. It, they've sort of ruined the occasion because how many of those players like is it their their biggest game that they've ever played in their entire career and probably ever will play yeah. against Arsenal and, and sort of sullying the occasion where it, it's just it's just a bit of a weird one I, I, I it's it's you don't want to see that so yeah, I think as well for him to, you know, go back to the sun, the people who have uh, who have uh, influenced him so poorly, essentially, and, and to do an interview with them this week. Uh, also, his defense, he was on Five Live earlier in the week. He was questioned, you know, did you know about the bet beforehand? Is that why he did it on camera? Blah, blah, blah. His defense was that it was a pasty and not a pie. So therefore, you know, the bet didn't come in, which is, again, a pathetic defense to, uh, to try and claim that. But um, yeah, you know, I think Wayne Shaw uh, tried to take an opportunity that was presented to him, and I think you know he, he's paying the price for that right now. Um, I can't imagine he's on much money either. No, so at you that know, level, I can so, understand it, but at the same time, I just think it was a poor decision uh, all around. I, th- I think you can lament his his stupidity for want of a slightly, you know, for using quite a callous word, but I also think this the Sun Bets or whatever name they they go under are just as reprehensible and and just as as shady in that in that respect you're right they should be taking almost the brunt of the the criticism as opposed to wayne shaw who is clearly you know i don't like any of their involvement the fact Mm. that they bought the sponsor out for Sutton for that one game the fact they make that bet in the first place essentially getting him into doing it like again this is a guy that has i imagine not a massive amount of money and and probably does live season to season because that's the way football works, even at that level. Arguably, especially at that level. That's the thing. So they've, it's it's just they've taken advantage of a situation and who's paid for what it. What has the sun ever done good for football, really? At this point, like <laughs> I can't think of any positive they've had on football. Um, if if there's a, a if there's a member of of their organization that listens and can think of something. I'm all ears because <laughs> even when they do something charitable, it seems like it's got a massively hidden agenda. Next question. This is a tasty one from Sandini, Santia Gomaza on Twitter. Thank you for your question. What's your take on how Arsenal Fan TV handled the Gary Neville interview? If you're not familiar with the situation, Gary Neville seemingly criticised Arsenal Fan TV on uh, Soccer Sunday, I think it was, um, a few weeks back. Um, he offered to have an interview with Arsenal Fan TV when Robbie took exception um, to the characterization of the channel. Um, Gary Neville invited them to Sky Sports. They had a half an hour sit down, much anticipated, much hyped. It's now got over a million views on YouTube. Yeah, incredible stuff. Uh, in terms of the actual interview itself, what? What? Oh, sorry, my girlfriend walked in. In terms of the actual interview itself, um, for me, it felt like somewhat of a missed opportunity to have Gary Neville there, the uh, you know premium pundit, one of the best broadcasters in the in the country, to have him there, and to basically go around in circles about why 
uh, fan channels weren't given enough respect. Uh, Gary Neville saying he was only talking about one fan, uh, calling him an idiot. It's not that offensive. Why don't you give us enough respect? Well, I was only talking about one fan. I found it a bit repetitive and a bit of a missed opportunity in a way, Chris. Yeah, they made it about themselves, which is, I think, what a lot of that channel is about. It's about ego and people essentially creating their own personas and channels spawning off the back of it. I, I have a lot of time for, for certain fan channels. I think, for example, Blue Moon Rising do a very good job. I've had um, good interaction with them in the past. I've worked with them in the past. They've actually been a really good source of information for me personally. Um, but no, I think I think Arsenal Fan TV, I, I understand what Robbie says. I've met him very briefly, so I can't speak to him as a person. I think that for all the talk of where well, we film every fan and everyone has a voice, I think he knows himself that it's not, it's not why the, the outside audience come in. They come in to watch people usually have a meltdown. And I do, I think it's become very much about ego. And the interview itself was massively about that, about people like Moore making these impassioned stands against Gary Neville and trying to make themselves look so intelligent instead of actually sitting down and having a proper discussion about, well, okay, how do traditional media and fan media work together? Yeah, I don't think it served the audience uh, necessarily. No, it, it, it served those individuals well because they, they got to say, oh, well, you, you don't respect us and all. It's got nothing to do with that. He, He's a, and it, we've already said it, so I'm not going to repeat it. You're entitled to an opinion. Fine, cool, move on. The problem is at the minute is fan channels, and I've had this discussion with Lawrence as well mm. over text. Fan channels are getting a lot of the trappings of mainstream media. They're going to kit launches. They're in some instances seeking press passes. They're wanting to do all of these things that they see as the cool bits of covering football or the, the beneficial bits of covering it. And at times, things that Robbie has lamented, people like myself getting, the fact that we go into these press rooms and we get our free food and free tickets. Right, that's fine. You can have that stuff, but then you have to live by the same rules and practices that mainstream media do. And things like that would not be having people like those characters on because, again, they say things and do things that, that just simply aren't... Um, allowable here's uh here's my problem with demonizing robbie too much nick i'd be interested in your opinions but um mm -hmm. my i know how difficult it is to build a youtube channel and you know i've worked for companies who have paid me a wage in order to build those channels and i know how stressful it can be i know how much work it is and i know how difficult it is so to see someone like robbie do that when he's got a full-time job as well i've got a tremendous amount of respect for someone who has managed just an achievement essentially and, and managed to build a platform and uh, an audience and a voice for himself and for other Arsenal fans. Yes, occasionally he falls into the trap of giving certain Arsenal fans too much uh, of a voice almost and too much attention and too much of the spotlight. At the same time, I find it a little bit troublesome demonising Robbie for falling into certain traps and trying to appeal to almost the lowest common denominator in his content and having the rants on there, doing things which he knows are going to get him views, which he knows are going to get him clicks, which are clickbait essentially, when he's not someone who, like other fan channels, you know, uh, they're all fans that work on them, but they've got money behind them. Um, they've got, you know, pro media professionals almost there to help them build the channel. His interview was sponsored by a betting company and he didn't even front up about it. But it had what, that look, the it, only it, thing it I'm trying to say in is... the corner and his introduction was you can get odds for such and such with these guys. Like again, I'm not I'm not buying that he's some gullible idiot. I don't think he's I a think gullible idiot. I don't think he's a gullible idiot. Situations but that he gets. My... And for that reason I've got no sympathy for him. But my problem is a lot of people seem to demonize Robbie and Arsenal fan TV for certain problematic things with the media when I feel like it's actually a bigger issue for all media and all companies and all sorts of, of platforms sometimes it feels like people are going after Robbie it obviously it's such a line and it's such a huge platform when it's also a bigger uh, issue than that at the same time as a great man once said with great uh, power comes great responsibility and Robbie does have a responsibility to 
to maybe take his content and evolve it and maybe do something more meaningful almost and, and something more impactful with the audience and the influence he has uh, and with the, the voice and platform he has, there, there perhaps could be uh, more insightful, more impactful things he could be doing with that, with that power, essentially. Um, <laughs> Nick, what are your thoughts? I think you both make some excellent points. You really hit the nail on the head there, Chris and, and Adam. And I think you know, you know, there's a lot of things wrong with the with the interview. It legitimizes a fan hierarchy. And and Adam, I think you you express what a lot of people in media really want to say. And that's like, in in a certain sense, we understand what you can write. I can write an article on so and so and make the headline this and that and get a million clicks here and there you know because it, it i think a lot of us sort of say you know i wish he would use his platform in a different way but i'll i'll pose you to a different question that i sort of garnered by watching the interview which is when when they allowed i think his name is dt to speak the yes. guy with the hat all the yeah, time yeah, yeah. um it, he he talked about how and i think this is the I think this is what you're alluding to when you talk about the larger issue. When he was talking about sort of his relationship with Arsenal as a whole and how much money he spent, he said he spent $70,000 over the past, or 70,000 pounds over the past uh, few years supporting Arsenal going away, watching all the games, and how that's a, a week's wage to Matthew Debucci and how, you know, he deserves to be heard by the club and the only way that he can be heard by the club is by bringing in banners and how some people think that's disrespectful and this that, and the other and how his father when it was his time to support the club he they had an issue with the manager at the time and within two weeks a select group of fans including his father was brought in to meet with some of the arsenal higher-ups and within two weeks the manager was sacked in my opinion and i'd be interested to hear both your opinions on this one just because you spent a certain amount of money supporting a club and just because you do certain things and you go to every game doesn't mean that you have the right to tell a club what to do with a manager has brought unprecedented success for 20 years now. I mean, keeping Arsenal in the top four for 20 years is an incredible achievement. I've said it before and I'll say it again. And I mean, just because you go to every game and just because you're super passionate about Arsenal doesn't mean you're hired by the club as an analyst or an official to make decisions on whether Arsene Wenger should leave or not. And I, I don't think that, you know, the, the, the discussion about Arsene Wenger is the only problem here because obviously we're talking about media. But at the same time, I think people feel so entitled and they say, I have an opinion. I deserve to be heard. You deserve to be heard. That doesn't mean that people have to necessarily act upon it. And just because I, I think that's where the dissatisfaction comes in when, when their opinion isn't acted upon. People are listening to them it's just their opinion isn't being reflected in in the decisions yeah and i, and I mean the thing is as well is that again the internet is a catch-all and it, it can't be it can't be deleted as easy as people think so for example watching dtc how we know i've never been abusive and things like that it took all of maybe two minutes before an Arsenal fan account pointed out the fact that he had said things that were really abusive about Arsene Wenger, about no wonder the fact his wife left him and things like that. So it, it's this bizarre thing where, and there does seem to be an, an animosity among some YouTubers. I've seen it with with True Geordie towards journalists in general, and that they don't trust them, they don't like them, and so really they think that there's some war between the mainstream media and you know, these independent publishers. I don't think there is at all. Some of the best contacts I have are those independent publishers, are people, like I said, like Blue Moon Rising, who I've done stuff with, Ball Street, who I've done stuff with, who work with Arsenal Fan TV on occasion. So I don't think that's necessarily the case at all. I think the problem is, is that these people who once had unfiltered opinions that could go without any kind of recourse or any evaluation are now finding that there are people that disagree with them and have very valid points to make. And so you get trapped in this washing machine-like cycle, which was that interview of, yeah, but we're entitled to our opinion, though, aren't we? Yes, but I'm entitled to tell you that your opinion is wrong, I think. Ah, yes, but as long as you know we're entitled to our opinion, ad infinitum. Like, it, it doesn't... Both sides are right, of course, but that doesn't change the fact that Arsenal Fan TV is going to have to have its opinions evaluated. And there seems to be this weird thing where they think their platform is being either devalued or pulled away from them when it's not it's being evaluated in the same way that people will say oh i thought jamie carrigan was talking about a nonsense true. there or or gary yeah. neville was talking 
look, that's part of the thing is that when you buy the ticket, when you enter the ring, you're open up to as much, uh, you know, what's the word I'm looking for here? Scrutiny as, as everyone mm. else involved. So that's where I was kind of disappointed with the whole thing, because I think actually, and I know Chris Pajak of the Red Men TV made a very similar point, so I feel obligated to acknowledge it, that it should have been discussing the future of fan channels. For example, it, do you yeah. see a point yeah. where clubs start to interact with them in a positive way? Do you see them coming into the media rooms? Mm. Do you see a day where a DT or someone like that sits next to you on Monday Night Football and that we start to maybe involve opinions that are not those well-recognized established members of, of the football fraternity. Because look, that's the other debate to be had as well is when you have someone and I know he's being battered from pillar to post and I've done just as much of it myself, people like Paul Merson, who seems so out of touch with the modern game and so unable to critically evaluate it correctly, despite having played it at a very high level and in England international, etc., cetera, are they, are they relevant in today's discussion? Should that be someone like, Nick, who is consistently putting out good content, making good points, should he be sitting on the Soccer Saturday panel? I think that is the most yes, interesting. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> now. I think that is the most interesting aspect, though, of what is the future of fan TV in terms of what is its purpose going to be? Because Robbie and others have this very influential audience and they have a very influential platform. Should they be using that for more than? showing people saying Wenger out. There's obviously that sense of alienation from the club. You know, Robbie himself says he wants to give fans a voice. DT is saying that it allows him to express how he feels about the club. And we know people from within the club pay attention to the channel itself. But with the with the influence they can have, should they not be doing more than, oh, we just want to get Wenger out? They could be doing more, I think, for Arsenal fans as a whole, be it ticket prices, be it other issues that are affecting fans. I think there is with the the power of the channel, there is a responsibility that is going to fall on them as well. I feel like that's the next stage of fan TV, not just you know broadcasting fan opinions, but having an active role in fan advocacy and sort of the the challenges that fans are facing as part of the football industry as a whole. So I think it will be very yeah, interesting it, to see how it how it develops. The the thing is as well, there's got to be a respect amongst fans as well. You look at the way that DT is addressed. Chris and Ty and people like that on that channel and I'm a little bit ashamed I know so much of this but you look at the way that they've addressed each other in those instances that's not respectful there's no way that I'm I'm going to be back on the Football Republic or CNN or anything like that if I start saying oh Europe see you next Tuesday you're this you're that and and look that's part of the thing as well is that I think DT has made some very salient points regarding Arsenal and the situation. And I see a validity in what he says. I also don't see that in troops. I see someone who's playing up to the camera, if I'm really honest. I see someone that talks a, a decent amount of absolute guff. And I think the whole blood fam thing, again, fine, if that's how you talk, but I don't think he naturally talks like that. I think he puts but, that on as well. And, and that's but, where I lose a little bit of respect for the whole thing. <laughs> But isn't that isn't that you guys talk about the future of the of the fan channels and isn't that sort of um, grittiness and sort of I guess faux authenticity of the actual fan and not speaking eloquently and not necessarily using objective points to back up your opinion and you you talk about the 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 fan channels sort of becoming more. Uh, associated uh, from a, an official perspective of becoming more associated with the clubs, isn't that the point where people start to say, oh, well, you're just part of the mainstream media now, so I don't want to talk to you. And then somebody else yeah. starts AFTV, AFTV round two, and it's then that one's more genuine. Mm. And then that one gets consolidated part of the – and it's just a cycle. I mean, isn't that it? I don't necessarily think they should become aligned with the club. I mean, you know, maybe they'll become a credit at one point where they can, you know, go to the press conferences and interview the manager, those sorts of things. But I almost feel like, mm -hmm. you know, with the way football is at the moment and the way people feel so pushed away from the game with the with the crazy amounts of money that are being generated, it should almost be in opposition to the clubs, in opposition to the league and trying to sort of sort of claw back what what should be a game for the fans and is quickly becoming more about everything else but the fans. I understand that's what Robbie always talks about, but I think there's more to be done than just giving fans a voice there should be action mm -hmm. and things put in place where uh yeah some pretty significant things could be done I think, I think. as well though i think as well you can acknowledge that you make money from it and that that's part of your motivation 
Well, why why do you need to to make why do you yeah, need to, to cry poor and be like well you know it's actually it's not as viable as you think and all that like it so why are you doing it then there's, there's no way that you're making 25 30 grand a year let's put it that way yeah he's, I, he's making good money to quit being what i believe was a, he was a quantity surveyor or something like that which is decent wage especially down in london so if he's quitting that to do this there's got to be a financial incentive and that's fine i think just there's uneasiness as a whole almost with uh, youtubers and the whole relationship with how much money they generate from their videos it's, a, it's an interesting one i mean i'm a big fan of robbie uh, met him many times i think he's a really nice guy i'd love to have him on this podcast to talk in depth to sort of you know talk about some of these issues maybe it'll happen in a few weeks you know we'll try and get him on um but yeah, it's all very interesting. We've taken so much time answering that question that we only actually have time for a handful more. Apologies, because there's so many great questions that have been sent in. Um, but let's try and get through two or three more before we do finish up the show. Um, Gushan at Gushan4 writes in. He said, who do you think will win the Champions League? For me at the moment, it's got to be Atletico Madrid. Uh, Chris, you were sort of suggesting that maybe Juventus is your pick earlier. Yeah, I, I think... Um... The, the one key change when Conte left and Allegri came in was there was better competition management from Allegri. He didn't, he didn't hold the pedal down so consistently, so it meant that they could manage different fronts. I think, as I say, the squad is, is very well balanced in terms of strength and depth. And like I say, when you've got Higuain, I know that's often the thing that's thrown at him, that he doesn't influence those huge games. I think him alongside the likes of Dybala and and players of, of that ilk, even Quadrado, I've been really impressed with him when I've seen him this season. I think that builds a very strong unit that, again, with no Barcelona in there, it, it could be a, a situation where Juventus end up picking it up. And I, I, th- I think, you know, you look at Bayern as well, they're another good shout. But yeah, I wouldn't be terribly surprised. Oh, just got fired from worse for Tottenham. Oh, dear. Uh, Juventus is a great shout. I like... I... I'm thinking PSG as well. I think if Unai Emery, uh, you know, proves to be as, uh, as 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 savvy as he was against Barcelona in that first leg throughout the rest of the competition with the players they've got and the talent within, I think they could be an interesting shout to uh, potentially be a winner. Um, what do you reckon, Nick? Yeah. Who's your uh, who's, who's your favorite? I was actually going to say PSG as well because I think if you look at People sort of dis- disassociate, and, and one guy that, or a couple guys in the analytics community, um, don't really believe in in the concept of form of a team going into the competition. I think that's prevalent with PSG because Unai Emery is so good at making his team sort of the underdog and the ability to to be so good off the ball that I think that's something that really plays into the the format of the competition. Obviously, you know, with PSG. He's working with a, a lot of a lot of higher fidelity players than he was at Sevilla, and I think that actually works in his favor. Um, and I think you know, depending on the draw, I, I don't see too many teams that PSG would have a two, you know, that I wouldn't favor them coming out of the out of the equation. I think if you look at Real Madrid, they're a team that that would be happy to hold possession, and PSG could expose that massively. If you look at Manchester City, that's certainly a possibility. I think if you look at, at Bayern and, and the likes of the other big dogs in the competition, I think PSG are a really good shout, and if they're going to do it, this is probably one of those years. Great question here from... Oh, where has it gone? Ah, great question here from Ajahn. Uh, he said, who is the most exciting player in the world? Most exciting. Uh, I'm going to interpret that as a uh, young player. Most exciting young player. <sighs> who are you thinking, Chris? I mean, whew, for me personally, Deli Alley. You know, <laughs> he's reckless, you know. But as, as, a Spurs and England, as a Spurs and England fan, he gets me excited, you know, for the future. Um, I was, I'm excited to see... Um, Moussa Dembele, the, the the French striker at Celtic as well. Obviously, oh, I thought goals. you meant the the Moussa, the Spurs Moussa. No, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> I can't go that far in my Spurs bias. Um, but you know, obviously, banging goals for fun uh, in the Scottish Premier League at the moment. Could he do it somewhere else? Being linked with uh, moves to to some of the biggest clubs in Europe, It'd be really interesting to see if he's uh, he's the player that he is hyped up to be. Um, what do you reckon? Nick? Who's the most exciting player around for you at the moment? For me. Um... You know, honestly, Leroy Sané is pretty fantastic every time I see him. I mean, the, the amount of nutmegs that he gets in a, in a game against pretty top-quality opposition is pretty entertaining. I mean, you're talking about 
pretty pretty good defenders, and he seems to make them look stupid every now and again. Um, but if I'm not factoring in my city bias, Leroy Sané is still pretty pretty it ranks pretty high up there. But I think um, this is a difficult one. Young, it has to be young player. Is this a question said? Uh, I've interpreted it that way. I'd say. Okay. Um, then I, I really like Renato Sanchez at the Euros, and I think he he'll eventually build into a, a good player. So yeah, Leroy Sané, Renato Sanchez. Wow, good stuff, uh, Chris. Topical. Uh, I find Mbappe fantastic to watch personally. Um, yes, good chance. Seen a lot of him of, of late. I think he he's wonderful. To, to a slightly lesser extent, Silver and Lamar in that team as well are, are really um, just great fun to watch. A player that, that I wouldn't say has been great, but it is one that I think could get his stuff together eventually. Olivia, I think it's Nacham. Nacham, I'm not sure exactly how I'm pronouncing it. I know I just said Nacham twice. Um, but he's a Man City loanee that's been a Genoa and, and hasn't really got a huge amount of opportunities. But he's big, quite physical. Um, can play wide right or in the middle, and I, you know, when you watch a player and you just think, ah, I like something here, but I can't put my finger on, on what it is. You just think there's something there to be unearthed. Um, so yeah, I quite like him. I think I think there's a few decent players. I, I quite like trying to do that personally. Sort of find a player that's at a big club and maybe doesn't cut it, but has the potential to go on and succeed elsewhere. Final question um, from Luke Door. Uh, always sending the great questions. What's everyone's favourite sport to play other than football? I'd probably say volleyball, says Luke. Uh, interesting choice of sport there. Um, what? But you would say volleyball. I was like, I've never heard <laughs> Not you me talk personally, about volleyball no. ever. I am actually uh, dead into badminton at the minute. A couple of friends of mine have taken it up, so I sort of grudgingly went along. It is brilliant, badminton. It's great fun. Um, so yeah, I'm going to say badminton is my favourite sport to play at the moment. It is it is decent. Uh, Chris, what's your favourite sport to play that's not football? Funny enough, I did play a lot of badminton as a kid. Um, it's wicked. It's I was wicked. I was in a club and everything. Um, sport I play that's not football. Uh, maybe dabble a bit in basketball, but honestly, I, I know it sounds Ooh, so terrible. I'm just obsessed with football. Yeah, yeah. It's all football's the one I play football. all the time. Um, Nick, have you got any sports you play other than uh, other than the beautiful game? Yeah, I mean, you know, in terms of playing, I, I, soccer is, is difficult or football is, is difficult to beat. But um, I, I'm very bad at basketball, but at the same time, I can jump pretty high. I think I can almost dunk. I can definitely hang on to the rim. Um, but in terms of sports that I'm actually decent at that I like playing, um, racquetball, if you've ever played that. It's really fun. It's racquetball. It's like, uh, you know what squash is? Squash. Right, yeah. So squash is like with the ball doesn't the ball's like a sack and it doesn't bounce as much, but like racquetball is a really bouncy ball in like that enclosed room and you just hit it around. Super oh fun. squash. Yeah, that's what we call it, isn't it? Squash, no? Okay, it's yeah. It's called so, racquetball. So racquetball. Racquetball's super fun. So I, I recommend it to anyone out there. It would yeah, it's good for it'll kill you, but it's good. Oh yeah. <laughs> it will it will definitely do that. <laughs> Well, that is all we've got time for tonight on the Front Free Q&A. Thank you so much for listening. I uh, hope you enjoyed the podcast as much as we enjoyed recording it. If you're wondering why we haven't talked about Spurs, we actually had to record tonight during the game uh, so we could schedule. We had to record during the game so we could actually get a show out for you guys. Uh, unfortunately, during the Spurs game, uh, Spurs knocked out, though, once again, by all accounts, uh, a good performance but let down by, as I said, the reckless Deli Alley. Um, so disappointing there. And you'd have to think now, Manchester United, potential favourites to win that competition um, and not only bag themselves the Europa League, but also potentially Champions League qualification if they do indeed miss out on the top four. Um, for now, though, until Monday, Chris, where can the listeners, where can the whole find you? At K-H-E-N-E-A-G-E. Nick, thank you so much for joining us again. The super sub himself. Uh, where can the listeners find more of you? I'm always happy to step in. Uh, they can follow me on Twitter at Nico, N-I-C-O underscore O Morales. And you can also go to Statman. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Dave's YouTube channel, check out his most recent video titled, Will Manchester City Win the Champions League? I'm on there. It's also a good video without me, so go check it out. Good stuff. Um, Guys, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you on Monday.